Welcome to Out of the Blank. to another episode of out of the blank podcast it's a special episode because we're going to be talking about the fred hampton assassination with two uh very prominent researchers uh craig it's a pleasure to have you back on the show and mr haas it's a pleasure to have you back on as well too i figured i'd start off the conversation with you guys introducing yourselves and at the same time uh explaining how you guys got interested into the fred hampton assassination so craig would you like to start thank you very much it's a pleasure to be back and thank you jeffrey for joining us so it's, it's a pleasure to be with you um, uh, my name is Craig Ciccone. I'm an independent researcher from Detroit, Michigan. Um, I've been studying the life, uh, times and assassination of Fred Hampton for nearly 30 years now. Um, and the 25 years of those 30 have been taken up, uh, spurred by Jeffrey Haas and the People's Law Office, um, a pursuit of the FBI's file on Fred Hampton, which was much more voluminous than uh, I was led to believe. Um, and 25 years later, the FBI has still not complied with my original request. And so it's been a, a long battle trying to get them to release what it is I asked for. Um, well, in 1969, the summer of 1969, somewhat at the urging of Fred Hampton, my law partner, Dennis Cunningham, pulled together a group of us lawyers to start something called the People's Law Office because this young dynamic Panther leader said, we need people's lawyers. Every time we try to go out in the streets and sell the Panther paper, uh, we get harassed. They try to close down our Breakfast for Children program. So we need lawyers. So it was part of that that we started representing the Panthers and also other groups who were with them, the Young Lords, the Young Patriots, SDS, the anti-war movement. So it was in that capacity that we became the lawyers for the Panthers and other movement groups in Chicago. Um, and it was also, uh, we were the ones who were contacted on the morning of December 4th, 1969. Um, I went to the police station where three of the survivors were and my law partners went to the apartment that where the raid took place and starting started videoing or and, and gathering evidence. So our involvement with the assassination started three hours after the raid on December 4th, 1969. Now, just speaking separately with you guys that I did on, on your own separate shows, and we talked about the assassination, and then watching the recent movie, The Judas, the Black Messiah, which we're going to go into a little bit because I have some issues with the film. Uh, when it comes to the assassination, I think this exposes a few things. First of all, a law system that didn't do what it was supposed to be in initially intended for, which was investigating either the death of uh, Fred Hampton, all bullets, anything that you can talk about ballistics wise that should have been picked up that weren't picked up. Um, Chicago police corruption, it has a whole lot to it that can get a lot of people lost to it. But I would ask for each of you, which is one thing that is your clear front gate thing of something that you can mention to a casual 
public person who might not know so much about the assassination, like myself, who the first thing that you would get them hooked in of like, this is one thing you can question. This is one huge issue that was not done that should have been done properly by either Chicago police, by FBI, by a bunch of things. You can even talk about the remaining file of Fred Hampton that is still not released to the public. Um, Craig, would you like to start? Mr. Haas, we'll go with you next. Thank you. Um, yeah, the the movie, despite its critical acclaim, um, of course, said that it was based on a true story as opposed to saying that it's, you know, that it's based in fact, when in fact the movie was not steeped in any foundation of any research that had been done. That is, they may have used uh, Jeffrey Haas's book. They may have used Jacoby Williams's book, the only two books that deal with Fred Hampton's life and assassination. But they never gave him credit. They were never consultants. So they did not consult myself, John Rice, Jacoby Williams, or Jeffrey Haas in trying to set this perspective, this lens of Fred Hampton, how he became the deputy chairman of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party, or the grotesque, grotesquely criminal way in which he was killed, and then his, his death being covered up. So is the, if there's one thing that I could tell somebody to that, that would hook them in, it's that Fred Hampton was set up to be slaughtered in his own bed next to his pregnant girlfriend. And it's a lot worse than anyone has ever made it out to be as far as um, the inhumanity, as far as the disrespect. But of course, that is what law enforcement agents did in setting up the Black Panther Party showing them, portraying them as uh, as thugs and uh, reverse racists and criminals and gang members, so that when these kind of catastrophic, catastrophic things happen, people who have read the newspaper said, oh yeah, I heard the, the, the Panther was shot and killed by the police, but they apparently had it coming because that's who they were, right? If you stand up to the police, if you call the police pigs, if you assert your constitutional right, then apparently that's that's good enough for a death sentence. So the fact that the CPD was not concerned with um, the the crime that had that had been committed, all they were were myopic about the illegal search warrant that brought them into that place, and they just literally tried to slaughter the nine people that were in that small, uh, cramped Chicago apartment. Well, it's difficult to characterize so many uh, really uh, terrible things, uh, illegal things, uh, malevolent things that were done in a quick wrap up. But what I would say is it's the most well-documented case of a political assassination by the U.S. and local governments that we have. And by that, I don't mean it's the only one, but I think it's the one where the paper trail where the witness testimony shows that this was an, a plot that started at the highest levels of government, maybe higher than Hoover, maybe with John Mitchell and Nixon. We don't know that because we weren't allowed to add them as defendants early on and Hoover was gone by the time we were allowed to do that. But we know for sure that the government ordered this assassination uh, and then internally took credit for it uh, while publicly denying any role. We also know that a local prosecutor, an ambitious 
person who wanted to be the mayor of Chicago took advantage and hoped that his raid on the Panther office and the murder of the people inside would advance his political career because he had termed the Panthers a gang. Uh, and so that the police carried out the raid and carried out a cover-up of what actually happened in order to both cover up their illegality and to try to advance the political career of Edward Hanrahan. So I think all these things came together uh, in a way that if we had known that at the beginning, uh, and as Craig said, we just got documents six months ago of additional proof that Hoover himself knew what was going on and that they were giving bonuses for this raid uh, to both uh, the control agent, Roy Mitchell, and to O'Neill uh, months after the raid. Now, when it comes to what Fred Hampton was saying that got him on the eyes of Hoover or whoever was in charge, I mean, the film made it seem like he was saying very radical things that kind of demonized him, making him seem like an aggressive person where anybody who's just like, oh, I can see why the government would have had a profile on him. But from my conversations with both of you, it didn't sound like that. It sounded more like a person that was just speaking out about trying to unite people in a sense of understanding. And that doesn't just label on to Fred Hampton or anybody of a certain ethnicity that labels on to me that labels on to anybody that just has a dissenting voice about what their government's doing. And I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And it backs the track record of the government when the government's looking at people that they would label communists or they, they would label a threat. And it brings up real dangers and kind of threats to what we would say is the right track towards democracy when you start realizing that your government's up to something or doing something that necessarily is not correct. I mean, does that mean they can just silence voices because they have the power to? Apparently, in this case, that's what they did. And I think I didn't think the film really reflected that as well. Well, you, you ask about uh, what Fred Hampton said. I guess it's not just a matter of what he said. It is, in fact, what he did. And at such a young age. Um you're talking about a man who was was mature beyond his years, uh, who had organizational uh, an affinity for organi organizing uh, and motivating. Uh, so it wasn't just what he said in his fiery speeches, which we can look at and and we can you know have the First Amendment uh, discussion. But um, but it was that it was of course the times that we're talking about the 1960s, where where a lot of um, Radical movements were coming into the fold and working together. Fred capitalized on this and unified a lot of the um, rhetoric, the 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 feelings of the community in Chicago and and the and the surrounding area. Uh, and he was, of course, saying very dangerous things to the status quo at that time. That's what the government, basically the seat of government, which Jagger Hoover called the FBI. <clears throat> um, the, it, it caused them the most danger. That is the status quo. If you are questioning the status quo, whether we're talking about economics, politics, culture, what have you, anyone who speaks out against that, who shows the contradictions in what the government says they will do and what in fact they do do, which is why the Panther Party in itself took up community programs, because the very uh, politicians and city officials who said, we are going to take care of you. They didn't. The Black Panther Party stepped in, not only stepped in with those community programs, but also told and showed people how 
hypocrisy or uh, how hypocritical uh, uh, city officials, government officials were in dealing with the most pressing issues of the black communities, of the poor white communities, of, of all of the disadvantaged communities. So Fred was not only saying it, he was also doing it. And that's what made him such a danger. And and Jeffrey and Jeffrey, you're the one who met Fred, and you're you certainly will be able to say this. Uh, Daniel Kaluuya's uh, depiction of Fred Hampton, while impressive because he's a very good actor, Fred never screamed at his audience. He was emphatic. He 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 you know emphasized some points with his voice, but he never yelled and screamed at his audience. But that's you know. You set that up as as his character in the movie and makes it, you know, he, he's just he's loud, he's obnoxious and he's a revolutionary. So that's why they killed him, which is which is a very simple, simplistic way of, of putting it. Well, I think you're right. And in fact, when you were there and heard Fred Hampton, he was much more. I mean, he was in the tradition of Malcolm and Dr. King. He had the cadence of the black minister and credibility. And so he didn't shout at you. He gave you the rhythm and the history behind sort of what he said. And therefore the method of delivery uh, was not hitting you over the head. It was very much convincing you uh, of the power of his thoughts and, 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 and his ideas. So uh, I mean, I think the other thing is, and I, I don't want to undermine Kalua's acting or the fact that young people were inspired by seeing his, you know, his acting of Fred Hampton. And there's been more interest among young people about Fred Hampton, partly because of the movie. But Daniel Kalua was 30 years old and Fred Hampton was barely 21 when he gave those speeches. And so there's also a youthful exuberance that Fred had. Uh, that I don't think somebody 10 years old, you know, could actually capture, uh, but that was part of his personality and, and was part of his charisma. Do you think that the movie, I mean, even in how difficult it is to find government traceability to the actions as well today, too. I mean, we have documentation, but even some of the government documentation just points it back to Chicago police errors. And it seems like this is definitely more orchestrated from above. And the film doesn't really necessarily, besides a guy in a suit talking to, uh, I don't know if that's O'Neill, who it was that infiltrated the Black Panther Party in the beginning, who stole the car or tried to steal a car and got stabbed in the process. Um, there's not really a whole lot of mention of this being like an FBI agent. What they do mention, though, is that you're doing a great act for your country by trying to stop these domestic terrorists in a sense. And that really, I mean, as a public observer, you know, I'm not very invested as much as you guys into the assassination because I'm still new to this, but that's my takeaways. And I'm viewing this and you got to think of someone who doesn't have any knowledge already into the assassination. Well, if you're talking about, about Fred Hampton and the, and when the government took interest in him, it was when he was still in high school. So we're talking about 1966. You've got the Chicago Police Intelligence Division opening up their file on Fred Hampton in 1966. Then the FBI follows suit in 1967. So they are surveilling, surveilling, and uh, have a great interest in this in this teenager. For you know, for for the last three years of his life, day in and day out. 
So the depiction in the movie being one-sided, that is the FBI, you do realize that the movie never mentions Edward Hanrahan, as Jeffrey had, had point out, pointed out, or the state's attorney's office. These were the people who were responsible for the actual raid. Uh, the, the police officers, PU or the special prosecutions unit, were detailed from the Chicago Police Department. They did not have a hand in this. So, so no, the movie fails to show, as Jeffrey pointed out at the beginning, that this is from the top level, not just Hoover, but the, but the whole uh, law and order uh, rhetoric that all other agencies from military intelligence groups to the FBI to uh, even uh, attorneys, um, attorneys general from, from the states, this was a mandate for, for everybody. Um, so that is not depicted in the movie. So the fact that even Hanrahan, the state's attorney's office, they aren't even mentioned, um, speaks to, to the lack of foundation in this movie. Um, and, the, and the collaboration between the FBI, the state's attorney's office, uh, many of whom the upper echelons uh, e e either served together as attorneys um, or uh, were friends. So they're colluding together to to make this happen is not sufficiently uh, mentioned in this movie or, or dis displayed in this movie. And the aftermath of Fred Hampton's assassination is also not depicted in this movie. So when you're talking about the, the Chicago police, they in fact covered it up. The mobile crime unit picking and choosing what they were going to remove from the apartment after the smoke had cleared and the bodies had been removed. The fact that they left the apartment open that the coroner's seal wasn't placed on the apartment until December 17th. So this is two weeks after Fred Hampton's assassination. Then the coroner decides to seal the apartment. Um, so um, the lack of internal division, the, the internal division, sorry, internal investigative division of the Chicago Police Department, their investigation of their officers and their conduct, that was a joke because the, the questions that were given to them had had already they already knew what were was going to be asked of them and the answers that they were supposed were supposed to supply. So the cover up really did happen with the Chicago Police Department, but this is again is not depicted in the movie. I think another thing that, and I don't blame a, a movie can't do everything, uh, and but this was something the movie didn't do. Uh, really was how did Fred Hampton get to be Fred Hampton? Because I think for the young, as you move the, watch this movie, Fred is, is objectified and you wonder, well, I could never be like him. How, how did he get that way? He, he was somehow some God that was created from somewhere. So I tried to put together a little bit of Fred's history uh, and maybe I can and show with some photographs after Fred's killing, I got to know his mom and dad and sister and brother pretty well uh, and their history and where Fred came from. And he was part of his family was part of the great migration from the South, uh, Louisiana, up to Chicago in the 40s. His mother took a job in a factory. She became a, a union uh, steward in the in the factory, a union leader. So I if, if you'll bear with me, I could show folks a little bit about Fred. I don't know, is this on your screen? There we go. Okay, well, um, 
I talk about the FBI and the government intelligence agencies from uh, starting with the COINTELPRO, and we'll talk about that up till using private intelligence agencies like they did at Standing Rock, where I also was a lawyer. So basically 40 years, I was a civil rights lawyer in Chicago, and it was in that capacity that we came to investigate the murder of Fred Hampton, defend the survivors of the raid, and filed a civil suit. Uh, 40 years later, I wrote a book about it. Uh, and the book is, I tried to write it and went back to school rather than as a lawyer, as a memoir, what experience, what the experience was like knowing Fred, what it was like to be in the Chicago in the late 60s and how I encountered and that fateful morning when I interviewed his fiance literally three hours after he had been murdered in the bed next to her. And as I said, I got to know his uh, family uh, after after he was killed, uh, this is Fred when he was 10 years old uh, on the right. Uh, and I heard some stories about Fred, even though he actually had a speech defect and act, practiced talking, uh, learned the nines so that he could defend himself. And eventually nobody wanted to take on his mouth, but it was not because he just was a great orator. He practiced. He memorized this, the cadence and the speeches of both Dr. King and Malcolm X. And another thing he did when he was 10 years old, his mother said he lived in a working class suburb of Chicago called Maywood. On Saturday mornings, he would go and, and get breakfast, buy breakfast and invite neighborhood kids over and make breakfast for, for them. And so I like to say he started his own breakfast for children program when he was 10 years old. But that was just the kind of heart he had, just the caring about and seeing that everybody got a fair chance. And he did this completely on his own. Um, these are some of the pictures of Fred uh, later on, uh, Fred speaking outside the conspiracy trial, the one at the top. Uh, when Bobby Seale was bound and gagged inside in the conspiracy trial in, in uh, uh, 1960, and started in 1969, uh, and Fred was outside. And I think the famous picture of Bobby Seale bound and gagged reminded people so much of slavery. And Fred was inside, then came out and told the world about that. And I think that was one of the things that publicized uh, who he was and, and made him a national figure. Uh, on the right is just a picture of Fred at his desk in the Panther office, uh, showing what sort of a powerful young uh, young man he was. Uh, Where's the AKs? Where's the AKs? The movie said that he, they were wearing AKs and they had chains and all that. Yeah. Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> that's not... True. And matter of fact, the great speech he gave that uh, when he came out of prison and he was framed up for an ice cream, uh, stealing 71 bars of ice cream and had to do two to five years for that. Uh, when he came out of jail and gave a famous speech, you know, he was wearing, a, he, he wasn't wearing a leather jacket. He was wearing a sweater. And uh yeah, if you don't mind, as a historian, I got to jump right in. Absolutely, the Black Panther Party, at least the the uh, central staff, did not wear uh, leather jackets and berets after January of '69. So Fred was always in his in in that uh, coat that's that you can see in two of those pictures uh, that he liked to wear. Um, 
And the other thing about the the picture of Fred at his office uh, at at Black Panther Party headquarters, one of the things that's revealed from the FBI documents is because they had both uh, the headquarters, BPP headquarters, two three five zero Madison, and Fred Hampton's residence, his mother's residence in Maywood, their phones were tapped, as well as the headquarters of the National Black Panther Party out in California. It's revealed just how busy the Black Panther Party headquarters in Chicago was. He was constantly on the phone. He was constantly being asked to speak everywhere, elementary schools, high schools, political uh, organizations and rallies, uh, particularly colleges. And of course, they use that those opportunities to recruit into the Black Panther Party. Um, but they were constantly busy uh, asking for donations, receiving donations, uh, legal uh, aid. They wanted information on where to find a lawyer. Thank you, Jeffrey Haas and the People's Law Office um, and, and things like that. It was just such a hub of the community at, the, at that time. And, and I think that's, that's a very appropriate photograph. Um, it really kind of sucks because when you look at what you Google Black Panther Party, you always see them look like guerrilla warriors or just with AKs and all these types of things where they seem really hostile. And I feel like the public really can't get past that once they want to dive into that wasn't actually how they were. Like when you see a picture of Fred Hampton at his desk, you kind of see a different depiction of what the Black Panther Party was actually doing. These some of the members were doing. And like even in the film, they don't depict that at all. They, you know, they make it seem like it's like I, I, I just more radical than it actually is. And well, I mean, Robbie, you, you have to understand that there was a huge difference between the national leadership of the Black Panther Party out in California and their state chapters. So Fred was in charge of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party, and their uh, priorities were based on community wants and needs, not necessarily the ones that are out in California. So where, yes, of course, they had made big splash, you know, headlines for uh, the bandolets across their chests and their shotguns and, you know, that they were armed and that they were ready, you know, to confront whoever would challenge them or, or uh, abuse their rights. But Fred was not like that. Jeffrey uh, um, mentioned Fred's only conviction. Uh, the, man's been, the man had been arrested several times before. Uh, and the one conviction was, yeah, for for stealing 510 ice cream bars and passing them out to the, to the children in Maywood. Fred was never brought up on a gun charge, ever. It was for mob action. It was for disorderly conduct. It was for um, defrauding an innkeeper because he didn't pay his hotel bill, or at least that was what was alleged. Uh, things like that. Fred was never violent. Um, it's much in the same um, ways that Malcolm X said um, that he doesn't he doesn't ad advocate discriminant violence, but you have the right to defend yourself. So any rhetoric that Fred used as far as a gun was concerned was about self-defense in 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 the uh, tradition of Malcolm X and Robert Williams. I just want to say that uh, Fred got on the the FBI list 
because he led a demonstration when he was in Maywood. He was the head of the NAACP youth chapter in the suburbs of Chicago. He led a walkout at the high school because black girls weren't being considered for homecoming queens. He led another march because there weren't enough black teachers and black administrators at a school that had an increasingly large black population. And then he led a group of young people to the city hall in Maywood demanding a swimming pool because the surrounding areas had pools that allowed white kids to go there. There was no pool in Maywood. So for a while, Fred drove kids to Chicago pools, even though he couldn't swim at that point or didn't. Uh, but he was demanding a pool. And it, when he went there, they wouldn't let the kids in. They tear gassed them. And some of the kids ran away and broke some windows. Fred was negotiating for a bigger room. They ended up charging him with mob action because he and a dentist had kicked off the rally, uh, explaining where they were going and why. But this well, Fred was a leader. He stood up for things. Uh, his dad told me he just couldn't accept injustice anywhere. And going back to him sitting there two days before uh, Fred was killed, uh, I went there because the FBI and local police had raided the office in Chicago three times, had shot it up, once had set it on fire, once had urinated on the cereal for the breakfast program. So they were constantly being harassed. But Fred, I went there because they had decided to buy the office because the landlord was gonna evict them because of the police harassment. We had gotten the money. So I went there and had Fred sign some documents and he gave me the money that they had raised. And I just remember him being this energetic, very busy person. I describe him as sort of a modern day rapper because there would be people there would say, okay, be at the breakfast program at time on time at six o'clock in the morning. We got to make the breakfast. We got to serve it. We got to clean up. We're at, at that point serving breakfast to hundreds of kids every morning. And I think Fred's credibility didn't just come because he was a speaker, but because he was there. He was there playing with the kids, serving the breakfast. He was there selling his quota of newspapers so that when he had that energy around him, people didn't just say, here's somebody telling us what to do. Here's somebody who's going to be out there with us, who's, who's very much connected to the people and the programs. And that's why I think his appeal was so great, not just in the Black community, but even in the Appalachian white community in Uptown and in, uh, in Lincoln Park, where what had been a youth gang, the Young Lord, a Puerto Rican youth gang, actually took on gentrification and took on the power structure of the city of Chicago. So this is who Fred was. Uh, he came up with this conscience with the mother who had uh, made food during a union strike uh, and with a father who uh, understood that that Fred just couldn't accept inequality, couldn't accept injustice. And his development from NAACP uh, youth coordinator, and I just, I'm still learning things, but we ran into a minister who had set Fred up, a minister in Hyde Park, who actually had Fred speak at churches all over the city of Chicago. And he got a tremendous response. Uh, and he knew Fred personally. And one of the in issues I learned was that when uh, I guess Fred went up to Milwaukee at one point where uh, there was a father, Grappi, who was a part of the Catholic left, 
And there was a group called, in the NAACP, called the Commandos, which was a black group that did wear leather jackets, that was more militant, that was in defending the NAACP and other civil rights groups. And Fred met young black leaders from all over the country. I just learned that 50 years later from somebody who knew Fred and, and really uh, uh, this minister who not only knew him, but followed him, went to his burial in Chicago, a funeral in Chicago, and actually went to his burial in Louisiana. Now, did when it comes to the Chicago police or whoever, did someone tip off or send a letter or anything like that to any upper tiers of the government to be able to get the eyes of the FBI or maybe people up higher um, focused in on Fred Hampton? I mean, for the number of stuff he's speaking, I mean, I'm assuming this is around Lyndon Johnson or is this after Lyndon Johnson? Uh, during. Because uh, well, I know he started doing some things towards civil rights. So I was just wondering if it was before all of the really kind of things are to be enacted towards civil rights or anything of that sort. Well, I mean, regardless of the passage of the acts in 64 and 65, it's still going to be very slow in this country. Even today, still have pockets of racism where progress is slow to to um, to implement these those kind of things. And, and even the 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 maturity uh, to, to grow up and grow out of that. So. Um, well, I would just say, if we look at what Dr. You know, COINTELPRO started in the 60s under Hoover, and they said the Black movement was the biggest threat, and the Panthers in particular were the biggest threat to the internal security of the United States. They made a coloring book. I've seen it. It's insane. I can't believe that's real. I, I, I told so many people after you told me that, Mr. Haas, I told so many people, they're like, that sounds like a conspiracy. And then I showed them the actual, that's nuts. I'm just sorry. I had to put that in there. It's crazy. No, but when Dr. King came out against the war in Vietnam, Hoover was given the authority and they were taping Dr. King and trying to blackmail him because of the supposed affairs he was having. And, and Johnson knew about that and COINTELPRO was targeting uh, King. And in one of their memos, they said King, uh, they had uh, a memo, prevent the rise of a messiah who could unify and electrify the black masses. And they mentioned that if King gave up his supposed uh, support of nonviolence, he could be such a person. So uh, it was under Nixon, of course, that that uh, was 1969 when Fred was murdered. Uh, you still had Hoover there, but you had people working with him who really were directing FBI agents in every city to develop hard-hitting programs attacking the Panthers. But you, but Rob, you asked what set it off. I mean, you got to realize that FBI agents, one of the many things that they did every day, they read the newspapers, or they were sent newspaper clippings. So, so the the um, the progress and and the things that Fred Hampton was doing in Maywood uh, made local, even underground, not underground, but non-mainstream papers, and and they would have been aware of this young man and what he was doing. That's why that's why I asked about the civil rights thing is because there would have been probably less newspaper articles if it was more an act of civil rights. But well, and, and the FBI certainly didn't just target King, the NAACP, uh, they targeted them as well and had ever since its inception. You've got to, you know, or close to its inception. You have to realize that Hoover had uh, been director of the FBI and its predecessor. So you're talking about a dictatorship of almost 50 years 
of that kind of law and order, uh, keeping the status quo, um, so forth and so on. Uh, so it, it was it was not it was not unusual for anybody who attended meetings um, just out of curiosity would have been swept up in in the very large net that the FBI was throwing over anyone that would would be considered or any organization that would be considered subversive. So it was it was not uh, it was not unusual that Fred Hampton was known about and known about at such a young age. Do you think there's a lot of supporting evidence to show that the Chicago police was also in fear of the fact that they had been able to get away with abusing many members of the Black Panther Party in the black community and they feared that if you know, this type of talk was happening that they would probably lose power or at least lose the ability to be able to do what they were doing already? Well, I think the police were very much trying to control uh, the black communities in various ways and saw any black uh, independent group as a threat. And I think one of the threats they feared in Fred Hampton was he was trying to bring the gangs in Chicago together to help the community rather than uh, prey off the community. And so Fred met with the leaders of the Blackstone Rangers. He met with the leaders of the disciples. He tried and temporarily got a truce among the gangs. So I think the ad, you know, Fred was a threat because he could speak to youth and he could speak to them about actually taking over and gaining control of their communities and using it to the benefit of the communities. So I think the police feared Fred because he was a force. I think the police had their collusion with the gangs. They were paid off by the gangs. They looked the other way uh, when around the drug issues, or they got their cut on it. Uh, and that was one of the ways that they controlled or attempted to control the community. So uh, I think the police had their own. Uh, and there was a Panther rhetoric. There's no question about it that to the Panthers and the community means get cops off, uh, you know, beater cops, get them out of the community. Let's have community control of police. But I think many police uh, were fearful of that. And as we used to say, the police union uh, never saw a case of police brutality they didn't support. So the Panthers were constantly raising the issue. There were two young men killed uh, right near the Panther office before Fred was, uh, who were trying to organize to set up a stoplight between the housing project and the health clinic. And under very strange circumstances, these two young men who spoke out, one was from the project and he was killed in a, in, in a, what the what bystanders said was an unnecessary shooting. His brother comes home from Vietnam for his funeral and he gets killed. So this is something the Panthers were talking about, police brutality, ending it. And for many cops, that was, was also a threat. But, but going back to this picture, this picture is the scene of the crime. Uh, this is the bed where Fred and his fiance, Deborah Johnson, eight month pregnant, were sleeping on the morning of December 4th at three o'clock in the morning. Uh, and as she told me three hours after the raid, when she was in police custody, that there was a shooting all over the apartment. For some reason, Fred didn't wake up. He sort of rose up and went down with his head. Uh, never really getting out of a horizontal position. Of course, it was tremendously noisy. Police were firing handguns, carbines, even a machine gun in there. Uh, and then 
she described to me how two cops walked into the room after she'd been pulled out and one of them said, is he dead yet? And she heard two shots and then the other one said, he's good and dead now. And now the ballistics of how he was killed, the two parallel bullets to his side of his head proved that what she told me was correct. And that's the blood on the bed where, they, where, where Fred was killed. And as Craig said, uh, and there have been questions, why didn't the police seal off the apartment? It was obviously a crime scene. Fred and Mark were dead. Four other Panthers were injured. Uh, we don't know completely whether they were fearful and wanted to get out of the neighborhood. One of the stories, and I think there's truth to it, is Hanrahan was so wanted the police to come back and show the Panther weapons at a press conference and claim that the Panthers were the victims, or that the police were the victims of an ambush, uh, that they didn't bother to collect. They started grabbing a few bullets and taking a few pictures and left. And so I think uh, now's the time to interject. There were, in fact, two of the Raiders who were wounded during the quote unquote shootout. Jeffrey, do you want to you want to explain what their wounds were? Well, it's it's, uh, you know, they they claim that they were wounded and Hanrahan said there. But the grace of God, uh, the Panther, the police would have been killed. And one of them's interviewed that morning talking about they didn't know it was a Panther apartment. Uh, they were surprised because they went in there with a machine gun, uh, a 30 carbine, uh, handguns, uh, and shotguns. So that's not exactly what you do when you were looking for. Well, they were allowed to bring weapons from home. Yes, their own personal weapons. Yep. Their own so, personal weapons. Yes. So, so, so each officer was armed with at least two to three weapons apiece. And so Edward Carmody, who was, who was leading the Raiders in the back of Fred's apartment through the kitchen, he breaks the glass, the kitchen window with his, the butt of his gun and he cuts himself on glass. So there's your first police casualty. Then John Suzuki, who goes into the back bedroom uh, after it's it's unclear, but it, it seems like after Fred had been dragged off his bed and now he's lying bleeding profusely on the floor uh, of the doorway of his bedroom, John Suzuki is in back there collecting the weapons and the guys in the front of the apartment are still firing through the apartment and he gets hit by one of his own men in the leg. So Yeah, you know, I think one of the things that all the survivors and there were two other people who'd been in that back bedroom to came up and try to wake up Fred. They dragged Fred's body off that bed out into the hallway like a trophy. I think that's one of the most. And the next slide is really just, this is the police carrying Fred's body out of the apartment. And a local reporter who had his police radio on that morning drove by the apartment and caught the smiling faces of the police as they were carrying Fred's body out. Uh, you couldn't imagine, you know, that it, it, it's hard to imagine that actually happening, but this was a few minutes later when Fred was being carried out, his body was being taken out on a stretcher and you can see the smiles on the Chicago cops. Well, that's the crazy thing is that you don't want to, to believe it to be true when it comes to, I mean, you can look at all this stuff that obviously points to show severe police corruption. Uh, but even, I mean, a hundred and is it 126 shots that were fired into the building and only one was attributed to the black Panthers. We, we trace 90, 90, uh, 90 shots that went there. 
and they sort of uh, converged on the bed where Fred was sleeping. And we'll get to that in a minute, but this is the response to people uh, coming to the apartment. The Panthers, uh, because the police left it open, the community started coming through the apartment and within 24 hours, and they could see, you can tell the entry and the exit bullet of a bullet uh, through the wall, the entry hole is smaller, the exit hole is larger with splayed wood, and they could see the direction of the bullets and that they came from the, where the police were and not where the Panthers were. But I need I, I need to give you credit again, Jeffrey. You talk about that you were called to the police station uh, three hours after the after the uh, after the raid. But it was also uh, um, Skip Skip Andrews who uh, started collecting evidence from the apartment immediately. And had he not done that, uh, there's 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 suspicion that the people that did that were taken through the apartment on those tours led by members of the Black Panther Party could have very easily picked up souvenirs. So it's hard to catalog just how many shots were fired for that very reason. We don't know how much ammunition was given to the officers, uh, how much personal ammunition they brought. They certainly didn't account for their own weapons or their own ammunition. And of course, evidence could have been taken on any one of those tours. Um, but it was because of uh, Skip Andrews and his thoroughness, at least from the beginning, as much as he could, collected and cataloged evidence out of that apartment. Well, they were also making a documentary during the time he was killed about his life. And then they eventually turned it into kind of an obituary when they went and go filmed his apartment and everything of that sort. Well, that, yeah, that's the other thing. I, I'm sorry, Jeffrey, how long uh, before, before, um, Michael Gray was in the apartment. Was it a matter of hours? It was a matter of hours. Like Skip came to my house. We lived down the block from each other. Skip comes to my house at around 5.30 or 6 in the morning. It was still dark. And he tells me he's heard, he's been called uh, that the chairman's been murdered. And I say, what should I do? And he said, well, you should go to the police station where the survivors who were not shot are the Wood Street Station, I'm going to go in with the family and identify the body, and we're going to go to the apartment. And that morning, maybe three or four hours after the raid, Skip entered the apartment with a filmmaker from the film group and a minister. And they filmed the scene as they walked in, and then they filmed the scene of them picking up each bullet fragment, where it came from, three inches off the southwest wall of the living room, and, picture, and actually took pictures of the shotgun cartridges and the shells. So we had a, a, the ballistics people, the firearms identification people there who could match up and we put dowels through the wall to show the direction of the bullets. And so we could prove we really had a chain of evidence that showed 90 shots by the police. The only shot going out probably came from what well, came from Mark Clark's weapon. It went into the ceiling of the hallway and it was a, probably a, a, a reflex shot as he was shot into the heart because it wasn't aimed at anybody. Uh, what do you think, I guess, what do you think makes more of an impact? The fact that you know, there's headlines out there that'll say police raid and then that's kind of it. Or do you think that showing the community the abuse and the overkill that happened at Fred Hampton's apartment 
Because I feel like the echoes through history of showing and letting people walk through, and yeah, it does mess with evidence and it wasn't maybe it might have hindered an investigation. Um, but a public or a community that felt like this was the only answer that they were going to be able to get, like this is the best thing that they can do because nobody's going to really thoroughly look into this. Well, it was tremendously powerful because the black community was somewhat divided on the Panthers, but they weren't divided on a young leader being murdered in his bed at 3.30 in the morning. And so we took, Panthers took people through there and the story could be told in the direction of the bullets. The police came in from one side of the apartment, the bedrooms and the Panthers were on the other. And the direction of those bullets, when you put the dowels through the bullet holes, went from the police to the people. Later on, when we found every, every bullet and every cartridge that could be found, the police crime lab originally said these two shotgun shells came from a Panther weapon that Deborah Johnson, or the, I'm sorry, that Brenda Harris filed as the police came in. Unfortunately for police, they, those pellets never landed anywhere. Uh, one of the officers said they might have gotten caught on an air hook, which was a term we'd never heard. That was his explanation. So Fred, so this is this is the Fred Hampton single bullet theory. I love it. Yeah. Uh, Later on, the FBI guy said, no, in fact, those two shotgun shells came from a police weapon and they weren't even similar to anything from a Panther weapon. So we had the ballistics weapon and we thought we had everything until I'm gonna show you the next slide. And this was a document, we filed a civil suit, we kept asking for a discovery. Uh, people were learning about COINTELPRO because of a burglary in Pennsylvania. Uh, some draft dodgers found these documents marked COINTELPRO. Uh, and it was an FBI program that targeted the Panthers around the country, or in particular, it targeted the entire movement, civil rights movement, NAACP, Dr. King, targeted the indigenous people's movement, AIM. So all of left movements were being targeted by Hoover, who saw basically everything as a threat. Uh, so we wondered, well, did this COINTELPRO uh, program, which was a secret program that said, uh, you know, disrupt, destroy, and neutralize the Panthers any way we can. That was their words. That was their directive to FBI offices, including the directive, prevent the rise of a messiah who could unify and electrify the masses. So it was Fred's ability to bring people together, to create a movement. They didn't talk about prevent the right, somebody who's going to shoot and kill people or attack the police who could unify and electrify the masses. And that's what Fred could do, both by what he spoke and how he lived his life. And so when we're pursuing this case and we're seeking all these documents and they were hiding many of them, uh, one day a U.S. attorney who in the wake of Watergate didn't want to get accused of destroying documents turns this document over. And if you have to look at it closely, and we did, it's the floor plan of the apartment where the police raided. And those are little markings uh, of all the furniture. And one of the, up in the right corner, it said Hampton and Johnson when they sleep here. Well, that was a floor plan and that was the bed. You see the bed in that corner on the right upper, upper room. That was the bed where you saw the blood. And why did where did this floor plan come from? And we 
pursued that, and it came from an informant named William O'Neill. And O'Neill was contacted by the FBI and said they wanted a floor plan of the new apartment that Fred Hampton and Deborah Johnson had moved into. So O'Neill and the FBI control Roy Mitchell wrote this floor plan. I believe that O'Neill must have had to go in there and note where all the furniture was because he probably didn't remember. So that floor plan uh, was created by the FBI and then given to the Chicago police. And they had that floor plan when they did that raid and the bullets converged on that room where the Hampton and Johnson were sleeping. So maybe one of the most important documents that certainly we ever got, uh, it was put in a file called the Do Not File file. So it could have been destroyed. Normally every FBI document has a routing and goes to every other office, but this one could have, and this particular US attorney didn't wanna take the weight for being told, you know what to do with this. And so this became a critical piece of evidence. William O'Neill had been at one part the bodyguard for the Panthers. For Fred, he was head of security. He was also a provocateur. He would encourage the Panthers to do robberies and stick-ups. He ironically created an electric chair uh, to threaten potential informants and a device that supposedly could deliver a missile. And Fred said, cut that shit out. I don't know what you're doing. Made him disassemble it. So this is one of the documents that that uncovered. Now with O'Neill, now when did the when did the all these plans and when did the floor plans get passed? When did the really think the plot to do this eventual deed eventually start? Like how far into O'Neill's you know infiltration into the Black Panther Party do you think it was maybe an idea before that? Like I mean to be able to not only if you look at the floor plan, see where they entered. I mean know exactly where Fred Hampton's bedroom is to be able to shoot him twice in the side of the head. Um, but just when did this all start being an idea of talking about realizing that you can't lock up this person? I get what the ice cream charge was kind of like a warning in a sense of like, hey, you know, obviously it's getting locked up on trumped up charges. But when did we start seeing where people were articulating this is how we're going to do it and it's going to happen on this night to eventually when it happens? That's that's an excellent question, Robbie. And to go back to Jeff's point earlier um, um, that the FBI and the police either or, not together, either or, um, had raided the headquarters three times. It, they never raided it because of a stockpile of weapons. It was always in response to something, an alleged sniper on the building, an alleged shot had come out, and uh, there was an alleged uh, fugitive hiding out at Black Panther Party headquarters. So the the um, justification for their previous raids on the Black Panther Party headquarters, not Fred Hampton's apartment, headquarters, had nothing to do with guns. So all of a sudden in late November, November 21st, all of a sudden because of um, reporting by William O'Neill to his, his contacting agent, uh, Roy Mitchell, uh, there's apparently stockpiling weapons in Fred Hampton's apartment. So that start that's that's when it starts is 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 basically November 21st. But uh, O'Neill had been one of the first members of the Black Panther Party. So when um, Special Agent uh, Mitchell told him to infiltrate the Black Panther Party or to join the Black Panther Party, he did. 
uh, in November of 1968. So by the time, so a, a year had passed and now all of a sudden there's this interest in something, guns that had never uh, piqued their interest before. They had plenty of opportunity to, to um, either try to confiscate guns or use that as, as a, as a, you know, justification for, for any kind of um, raid, but they never did. Uh, so we have to look at, like you said, the timing of it. Why now? After a year of all of the information that O'Neill had provided, the FBI and who knows, you know, what other agency, um, why now? And that, but that's, that's a different discussion. But it started in November 20, November 21st. As, 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 as Craig said, O'Neill was arrested for, with a stolen car and he had an F phony FBI identification on him. So he was turned over to the FBI and Roy Mitchell thought, what interesting, this sort of street smart black guy driving a stolen car, why would he have a, a phony FBI? And it's because I think in some ways O'Neill wanted to be part of the FBI. Oh, he absolutely did. Absolutely. It was a dream of his. So that's what the movie got right in the beginning. Not because he particularly cared about law enforcement. I think O'Neill wanted to get over on everybody. Because when he was in the Panthers, obviously he wasn't a Panther. He was reporting the FBI on what the Panthers did. But then he was still going out and doing stick-ups, robberies and burglaries, so that he was getting over on the FBI too, because he was using his immunity as an FBI agent to get away with criminal conduct. So, I mean, he was a hustler supreme. Uh, and, well, and, a, and a power junkie, using the power of the FBI. Hey, now I'm an FBI agent and I can do whatever I want. And he did, like you just said. <laughs> but you asked about the intent. And I think here's a document from January of 69, only three months afterward. And this is a document that Hoover was uh, telling all the FBI agents to develop hard-hitting programs attacking the Panthers, even the breakfast program. Uh and here is a letter that the head of the FBI in Chicago, Marlon Johnson, writes, uh, here's the text of it, to the Jeff Fort, the leader of the Blackstone Rangers, the most powerful and most well-armed gang on the south side of Chicago. And so this is a type version. He sends a handwritten version to Jeff Fort in January, and it says, Brother Jeff, I've spent some time with some Panther friends on the West Side lately. I know what's been going on. The brothers that run the Panthers blame you for blocking their thing. And there's and there's uh, going to be a hit out for you. I'm not a Panther or a Ranger, just Black. From what I see, these Panthers are out for themselves, not Black people. Panther, not Black people. I think you ought to know what they're up to. I know what I'd do if I was you. You might hear from me again. So they send Jeff Ford a letter saying there's a hit out on you. Uh, I know what I'd do if I were you. So the idea is to get Jeff Ford and the Rangers to do what the FBI wouldn't get caught doing. Uh, I think uh, his lingo uh, probably wasn't credible to Jeff Ford because he got the letter, but he didn't believe it. The Black Brother didn't sound too uh, authentic to him. <laughs> but 
you know, we put the FBI into the head of the FBI in Chicago who wrote this and said, well, what did you mean when you said that told this Jeff Fort there was a hit out on you? And he said, well, a hit's a nonviolent attack. And that was kind of interesting that we'd never heard that definition of a hit. But that's the intent. And that's in a case where you want to show that the development of the floor plan that's giving to the police was done with the intent to get Fred murdered. And here you have an example of them trying to get Fred killed by the Blackstone Rangers. Right. Um, it was it was the FBI's modus operandi. That is, you um you take existing rifts between either individuals or organizations and you stoke the fire between them with stuff like this in the hopes that it will come to a head. They will shoot it out with each other and kill each other off. Hence, doing what the FBI cannot do, even extra legally. And it didn't work because Fred was because you this this particular letter to Jeff Fort, but there was also one sent to Hampton too, and Hampton and Fort just did not buy it. They just were not duped by it. They were entirely too smart. Um, as if you needed another smoking gun. Uh, one of the documents that came forward. Uh, was after the raid on December 11th, although it was started uh, even earlier, but seven days after the raid, uh, uh, Hoover approves a bonus for O'Neill. And in the wording there, it says, felt that the information is of considerable value in consideration of a special payment for the informant. And it says this information was not available for any other source. So for the production of that floor plan, he got his pieces of gold. He got a $300 bonus ordered from the people at the top and saying this was valuable. And we found other FBI documents calling the raid a success. So we have, and then later, even uh, within the last couple of years, more documents came out showing that, that Hoover and Sullivan, his right-hand person, were actually watching to see what would happen when the police gave, when the FBI gave that floor plan to the police. They were following it very closely. Um, and one of the things that we never quite understood is the, the, the claim was that there were some weapons, shot off shotguns there that were of illegal length. Well, that would be under the jurisdiction of the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms Division. Why didn't the FBI turn it over to other federal agencies? Because they didn't want to be seen as accountable. So an entire federal grand jury was called because the Black community was so outraged. They did an investigation, but oh my gosh, they never learned about O'Neill. They never learned about the floor plan. Uh, <laughs> And another document that that the PLO um, uncovered was the document that said that the guns in question were legally purchased. Right. So, the, yeah. So so the the justification for the raid itself for the search warrant uh, was under false pretenses and was was illegal. So, both. This is my law partner. This is Flint Taylor and myself outside the Panther office. So, uh, Jeff, why don't you have really nice little sideburns like Flint Taylor does? I, I really don't. <laughs> I, I got my Jufro, but I don't have my uh, <laughs> sideburns that he does. You guys, you guys are awesome. That, that, that's awesome. 
That looks and, that looks like like from from a from a, show, a TV show, a cop show from the 1970s. It looks like you're about to Car- drop off a hot and, album. Carsky and Hutch. <laughs> so anyway, uh, it, it it you know to some extent it highlights our youth, and you know not only did you have the FBI and the local police conspiracy, not only did you have the local police lying about what happened, blaming somebody for pant for shots, making up false story about the raid but as as craig mentioned the internal investigation division turned a blind eye we went to court and ran into a totally racist judge uh who after an 18-month trial in which we presented this evidence while the jury was deliberating he dismissed the case we had to get him completely reversed on appeal so it was it was quite an introduction to the legal system for for both of us. Uh, And and Jeffrey, I've got to commend you because I was just recently listening to the audio deposition of Edward Carmody. And it's one thing to read exchanges between you, Clint Taylor, Jeff, or uh, William Bender, um, Hollis Hill, and Coughlin and Vellini. It's it's one thing to read it, but to hear your patience in, in the midst of questioning this cop who almost like he was trained, he he kept saying over and over again, I have no specific recollection at this time, or as I sit here now, I have no distinct knowledge. Over and over and over again, your patience has to be commended. I don't know how you guys got through 13 years of that. And like you said, Judge Perry, who would not allow certain questioning when you guys were trying to establish the foundation of the very charges that you were bringing against, the FBI, the state's attorney's office, um, Chicago police. It, it, it's the, the the case in and of itself. It, you know, it, it would take volumes to to you know to 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 bring all that out. So I just have to commend your patience, Jeff. I I, I just can't Thank believe. Thank you. It. I I tried and capture some of our frustration in the book. Oh, yeah, absolutely, you did. Fascination of Fred Hampton and both Flint and I did spend a night in jail uh, and had numerous contempt charges by the time it was over. Uh, once I said to the judge when he wouldn't allow questioning, I said, judge, you can't cover up the cover up. And he immediately had the marshals put me in a jumpsuit and take me to the MCC. And once Flint got so frustrated, he threw his stuff down on the table and it knocked over a water pitcher. And the judge called the jury back in and told them what had happened. That Mr. Taylor had lost his patience, so it 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 it, it was difficult and trying. Uh, on the other hand, I think we would sometimes think of Fred and well, what would Fred do? And you gotta you gotta make a commitment. That's what he said. Fred said, "If if you're asked to make a commitment at the 20 age of 21, yep. and you say I'm too young to die at the age of 21," he said, "Then you're dead already." Yep. So absolutely. Well, thank God people like yourself are out there, you know, at least documenting a lot of this as well too, and being able to share your stories for people like me who, I mean, I never even heard of Fred Hampton until I came across your book, Mr. Haas. And it's a sad thing that, you know, history doesn't talk about Mr. Hampton more. Well, I think that's one of the things I am glad that the movie alerted young people to the existence of Fred Hampton. I think Black Lives Matter before the movie actually uncovered Fred and what a leader he was and how he was killed by the government. Uh, And I hope that my book and uh, 
Jacoby Williams book and others. And, uh, you know, I think for young people now, there is a realization. I don't recommend the movie, though, the, the Judas and Black Messiah movie at all. Well, they took some of what we learned and created characters around them. And I have many criticisms of the movie. Uh, I do think it alerted young people that there were Panthers and that there was someone named Fred Hampton. Uh, unfortunately, the movie sort of uh, idolizes the informant, William O'Neill. Uh, and, you know, as opposed to Fred and the Panthers. So that's obviously a, a, a very big criticism. And but I do have but I do have to go back and 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 um, one more time commend the People's Law Office because you had mentioned earlier, Jeffrey, uh, the Media Pennsylvania papers um, where the where the program COINTELPRO was was first um, was first emerged. It was because of an illegality that we learned about the illegality of of the FBI. I think that the PLO, People's Law Office should be mentioned right alongside the media papers, the Pentagon papers, the Alliance to End Repression, and even the church committee in the importance of, of how you guys um, created our understanding of U.S. intelligence apparatus in the 1960s and 70s. Like I said, you guys should be mentioned right alongside them. So, Well, I mean, the church committee was a bit of a whitewash. I wouldn't I wouldn't say that. As a matter of fact, when you're talking about uh, where can we find documentation, I, I'm going to direct you to the church committee. But when, when we get to that, we'll get to that. Uh, but but no, the importance of of these documents and and being able to uh, expose uh, the hierarchies, the motivations behind the U.S. intelligence apparatus. Like I said, the PLO was instrumental in that, just as much as the Pentagon Papers, the Church Committee. Uh, the Alliance to End Repression, or even the me the media papers. The church committee, I mean, they exposed a heart attack gun, they exposed CIA on campus, they exposed uh, assassination, foreign assassinations. But my issue starts to become is that there's an idea out there that the government's incompetent. They always get caught on things. And I'm like, well, they get away with it because they nobody ever pays the price. The church committee asked about the budget, and William Colby and other directors that were also speaking to William Colby in his ear were saying, yeah, you don't need to publish the budget, and the church committee moved on. I mean, yeah, we got some very crucial things on it, but I mean, a government accountability is one of the things that we need to have a real live court hearing discussion on about who's going to be the ones that are going to stop them from doing these actions and let it progress because i mean that's what we see throughout history the church committee is a great example of stuff that just has continued to exceed on today there's other things out there cia is still on campus and there's this aspect where if you talk about certain things people will say that sounds conspiratorial a Black Panther coloring book that was created by the FBI sounds conspiratorial, but it's real. And it's like there's been such a large disconnect between the government transparency on things and the public's opinion on what the intelligence agencies or whoever or what they are doing. It's so huge. And this is one of the biggest dangers that William Colby saw, which when he, he did Watergate was his big issue, which is that the public needs to know somewhat of what we are doing. You don't need to tell them everything national security, whatever that means. But there needs to be a connect because now we've gotten to a point where we're so disconnected that we're stuck in like an echo chamber. And now we're going to continue going down a really dark road and the public's not going to know what that is. And it's all going to look really bad in the end. And I think, you know, that's common examples of stuff we can see today. Yeah, but you're you're talking about the difference between accountability and what the public does in response to that accountability. I mean, when you're talking about accountability, what are you asking for? Are you asking for with the exposure 
of COINTELPRO, which of course the media paper initiated, and it was the it was the church committee that explained what it was, and the documents that Jeffrey showed, and other documents uh, to the extent of uh, their their um, uh, their operations against um, groups like the Communist Party, like the, like AIM, like the Black Panther Party, like uh, the Nation of Islam, so forth and so on. It was important for that to emerge, whether or not the church committee actually did something of substance. That is, well, did it cut the FBI's budget? Well, of course it didn't. Did it, did it reprimand the very agents that were um, constructing these programs and these uh, anonymous letters and that led to deaths and things like that. No, they didn't. But public uh, awareness is is important. Um, hopefully, we get enough public awareness in the exposure of these documents and this behavior by our U.S. intelligence agencies that it that it comes to a head. It comes to a you know, um, um, uh, you know. You can't have documents that are still sealed about the Fred Hampton assassination all these years later. That's just no. That's well, like, not, that's not, not not sealed, but 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 the FBI's the other <laughs> mo for the FBI is frustration. Uh, Jeffrey knows this firsthand. That when you ask for something, they give you something which wasn't what you asked. You asked for something, and they still haven't given it to you, and they claim they don't have it. Like the fact that the FBI told me that there was not an Ottawa, Canada. A uh, legal attaché or a legat that created a file on Fred Hampton when he went to Canada on a tour of Canadian universities. I have the very document that gives the number, the file number for the Ottawa legat. So it's it's about frustration and it's about do you have the patience and for the long haul? Those that have it will will be rewarded and you know um, these things will come to to the forefront. But um, it it is it is frustrating and it is it is not for the weak of heart. <laughs> I think the church committee did uncover and write about some of the things they actually did pass some legislation that restricted the CIA and the FBI under Gerald Ford. Uh, interestingly enough, Rumsfeld and Cheney, who were working for Ford, uh, got him to veto the bill and then. I think Congress overrode it because I think these issues go, you know, ebb and flow. And in light of the Watergate, uh, I think people were really upset about the government, the tapes and so forth and the Ellsberg so that there were some restrictions passed. So to some extent, and, and that doesn't mean everything was create was produced. On the other hand, in terms of accountability, how many war crimes have been prosecuted in this country? whether going back to Iraq or Abu Ghraib or even Donald Trump stealing everything and doing, you know, violating every criminal statute you could imagine, there's always the, well, let's move on. I mean, they nobody ever gets prosecuted for these things. They may get exposed. They may end the name of the program COINTELPRO. They're not going to end up uh, not surveilling people. Uh, we discovered that at Standing Rock, they've even got more sophisticated methods. Now they use private security agencies like Tiger Swan, which was a group that was created in Iraq to help the military spy. So these private companies uh, were up at Standing Rock, sending agents into the camps and reporting to law enforcement and, and taking their own actions. So 
you know, on the, I, I think it's good to expose it and have people know it. Uh, but in terms of ultimate accountability, we haven't ever seen very much in this country. Well, well to, dump, to dovetail that point, it's it's even the old civil rights cases like Emmett Till, like Cheney Goodman and Schwerner, like um, uh, Medgar Evers. These were all finally prosecuted, you know, 40, 50 years later, but it's because of government expo or exposure of what the government did and covered up uh, that that allowed the prosecutions to happen. So I still I still have faith um, as far as as. Um, Exposing, you know, the cover-up in Fred Hampton's assassination and the extent to which and uh, its depth and breadth. If you want accountability or if you want transparency, if you want exposure, just corrections in the way that the intelligence agencies or whoever are doing, it starts with the little tactics that they use to get away from stuff. Even with the church committee, one thing that they put in there was that the final say of things that could be disclosed would be towards Congress. And then the FBI and the CIA, there's documents to show that they found ways to manipulate certain wording just to be able to get through Congress. Be like, you don't need to release that. It could be national security and then it would get passed and such. One quick example is Richard Helms' biography. Now, if you've ever read Richard Helms' biography, the rough draft of it states that through my time as CIA director, that there's been over a thousand covert operations. He stated that in the final copy, the ghostwriter switched it to a couple dozen. That is a very big word impact to the whole scenario of the story. And you get into this point where look at the Watergate hearings when you see, oh, you want that document? I think that's the NSA's document. Then the NSA, they go to the NSA. Actually, that's the FBI's document. Months and months of delayed progress in trying to find a document, just pointing fingers at another agency. And nobody knows who has the document. So then you have to go to all this long route. These are small tactics that you can nip in the butt real quick. Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially when FOIA was designed for disclosure. That is, when in doubt, if, if something should be redacted, always fall onto the side of disclosure. But of course, the FBI documents that I got, Jeffrey didn't have to worry about that because he got it through discovery. So you had a judge, you had, uh, you know, uh, defendants and, and, and attorneys, defendants for the attorneys who are looking at these documents and making judgments right there. Jeff could argue right then and there, hey, if we don't know what, what's redacted, we don't know if it's pertinent. So you've got to read it and you've got to tell us if you can release this information to us. With me, it's trying to read through redactions, which I know in 30 years of reading FBI documents, essentially what's being redacted. And, and they're entirely too liberal with, with the black markers. Um, but but even, even that, as far as uh, exposing what the FBI is still doing to this day to protect the reputation or, like you said, under the guise of national security, it, it is ridiculous. We, we, but this only comes when more and more people um, ask the FBI for the very documents they keep from us. They are not going to voluntarily release these things. We have to ask for them. And we have to know what we're asking for. And if we don't get what we've asked for to continue the fight and to, you know, to continue to, to compel them to, to, um, to, you know, release these, these documents.
Well, how do people get justice in their lifetime is the point here. The people that put in the work like Mr. Haas and the people like Fred Hampton's family that should be given, you know, proper closure about exactly happened and rightfully compensated for the whole thing as well, too. Um, obviously, that's not going to bring Fred Hampton back and there's nothing that we can do about that. But we at least can get some transparency and at least get some historical accuracy on what the hell was going on. I mean, besides speaking about it, I mean, educating the public more on Fred Hampton, which I think, you know, it doesn't take much. It's just about showing people that this event happened and it exists. You know, a lot of people history, I mean, it's hard to get people to care about something a week ago. I mean, me and you, Craig, have been focused on the Kennedy assassination. That's damn near 60 years. Let me tell you, that's a hassle and a half. Um, but people will care when you show them the things that don't add up, when you show them that their government is necessarily not out there for their good. It's not a government of the people. You know how many documents I've came across during the Kennedy assassination topic where it says Garrison's attempts to embarrass the agency, your agency is speaking about you like an ant. And that is very dangerous. That is, you know, those are powers that need to be checked. And that's from the seventies. And there's not really much examples of change and corruption in the way that things have been going because there's been no transparency and accountability, maybe 50 years later, but that's not good enough. You know, this process needs to kind of be stopped. And there's ways that we can do that and effectively talk about it as well, too. I mean, it goes into another thing I was going to ask about Fred Hampton. Do we think that he had something slipped in his drink? Like, is that a real thing? Like, how do you sleep through all that? Like, that's a reasonable thing to ask. You know, the physical evidence of, of what they found in his bloodstream uh, cecobarbital he didn't take drugs so how did that get there one of three autopsies showed that that also reinforced what Deborah described to me as Fred never really woke up uh, those would be indications of uh, he was drugged well and I'm sorry Jeffrey and that he fell asleep during conversation and he fell asleep talking to his mother my only question about is would if O'Neill was the one who drugged him, I wonder if the FBI would have wanted O'Neill to know they were coming that night because informants are dangerous and you don't necessarily let your informant know everything you're going to do. You'll get the floor plan from them and they can figure out what it's for. But do you tell an informant that you're going to do a raid the night they're there? Maybe. I don't think you do. And that's why I don't know whether that challenges the drugging issue or whether O'Neill was the one who did it. I, I don't know. The physical evidence would say yes. His actions would say yes. Why the FBI? It's also possible, and people have thrown this out, that the police may have done that. They might have had an informant there. Uh, and we don't have evidence of who that was, and that opens up all kinds of Pandora's. Wait, so O'Neill was in the house that night when Fred... So, but did they yeah, know what time there. he left? He brought Deborah there, and he was there and left early before they went to sleep. So, so he, he could he have been made aware. He could have had the opportunity to do it. Yes. Yes, but but the important point, as Jeffrey just pointed out, there was not just one informant, FBI informant or uh, a police informant. There there were many. Uh, whether or not we can discuss, you know, how many have actually been identified, but O'Neill, of course, is is the one that has the highest profile. Um, but and I and I, I don't want to breeze over this too too fast. Fred had three autopsies. The first one was simply incompetent, and and the 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 doctor who did the autopsy clearly didn't want to do it. 
uh, nor did the guy who signed the autopsy because he only had a, a, a limited medical license to do the autopsy. So it was it was medically incompetent in the first place. So then a second independent um, pathologist does an, a second autopsy, and and it's during that toxicology um, that that the presence high degree of cecobarbital was found in his blood because the the cook county coroners did not test his blood for barbiturates simply for alcohol um but then to of course uh settle the question the 1970 federal grand jury uh ordered that fred hampton be exhumed from his plot in haynesville louisiana two months after the second autopsy and then they tested his blood um the commission of inquiry um, it was a it was a group headed by Ramsey Clark, the the former Attorney General, uh, and Roy Wilkins of the NAACP. Um, that study actually asked um, funeral directors, given the amount of solution that was get put in Fred Hampton's body for burial preparation, that is when he was embalmed, given all of the chemicals that were put into his body, could then any kind of barbiturate be found in Fred Hampton's blood after he had been buried for two months. And of course, the 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 overwhelming uh, opinion was no, you couldn't. So the 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 seemingly legal definitive answer of whether or not there was cecobarbital in Fred Hampton's blood was established by the second autopsy. <clears throat> and then the question is, okay, who could have done it and why? Well, to so that Fred Hampton would not, in fact, put up a fight or be able to defend himself. What time did O'Neill leave if he left early, or is it just he left early? Well, it wasn't that early. I think it was around midnight. I mean, they hung out. There was a political education class that night at the office. They came back to the apartment. They ate. They drank Kool-Aid. And then he leaves, I don't remember, but fairly late, you know. uh, But the police came in at 4.43 or 4 o'clock, 4 a.m.? 4.30, about 4.30. So I'm, I mean, that's a reasonable amount of time to get out of it. But even then, I'm like, did they know? Did he know what time they were going to be coming in, or did he just know the raid was going to be happening at that night? I, that's my biggest question. Would they have notified him that they were doing it? And somebody suggested there was a there was a an, a memo that we heard about during the trial that we never saw. And it said that in their t- that that one of the FBI ideas was to play on the police Panther hostility, and to build up police hostility toward the Panthers. And they supposedly this memo that we never saw said it would be good if a cop were killed in a police Panther confrontation. So my question is, would the FBI? have cared if Fred had picked up a gun that night. Maybe they would have liked that uh, if he'd have been killed. On the other hand, the local police who were doing the raid, they probably would not have liked that, which is an argument, but maybe the local police uh, had someone else in there. I I just don't know. I, I, I can see the physical evidence shows drugs in his system. Uh, his conduct shows that. As to who did it or why, <laughs> I I don't know. Well, the other possibility is is that is that he was o- O'Neill William O'Neill was ordered to do it, just not told why. That's all. That's also a possibility, because he's an FBI informant. You do what you're told. So if if Mitchell or anybody in the FBI actually shit, even Jalovec could have said, um, you know, 
be here, do that, but never tell him why. And if he could have, I mean, if you can find documentation to find that like they could have, police could have been late to the apartment or anything of that sort. I mean, the FBI kind of seems like the type that if they can get rid of the informant at the same time of get rid of Fred Hampton, it would be probably the most objective goal for them. Like if he could be there when the police shooting starts, I mean, if he's already dressed up kind of like the Black Panthers, um, I, I bet you they probably thought the Chicago police would easily just mistake him for one and shoot him as well. Yeah, but remember, they weren't, none of them were in uniform and especially when they're sleeping in bed. So, uh, but Jeffrey, you can, you can speak if you, if you can remember, because I was talking about Edward Carmody and listening to his audio deposition. One of the lines of questioning that you had for him was, okay, how many other raids did the SPU go on the special prosecutions unit? Um, and did you do it at night? And he never, of course, never gave a clear answer, but this is his deposition, not his testimony. Do you recall any of the raiders in their testimony? being definitive about how many different raids had they gone on or was was De december 4th an anomaly was the fact that it was at night an anomaly 14 officers was that an anomaly well absolutely it was they'd never taken their machine gun they went and checked out the machine gun uh that they took uh so gorman took a machine gun they'd never taken that on a raid there were alternative protocols that i don't know remember if they had done which is when you think there's a a likely confrontation and you're trying to serve a search warrant there are ways to do it you call the number and you tell people to come out you get on a, you surround the place and you get on loudspeakers and say we have a search warrant for your place in other words if you don't want a confrontation, you don't come at four in the morning, knock on the door, and then come in shooting. Uh, so there were different different methods. And I don't recall any of them saying that, that their normal protocol was to go at 4.30 in the morning with 14 people, seven in front and seven in back, you know, armed to the teeth. Right, right. And, and of course, they also could have served, served the search warrant, that is, gone into the apartment, removed the guns while they were at the politi uh, political orientation meeting, like you just said. They were gone from 8 to 10. So the apartment was empty. Yes. They could have gone, and if their, if their objective was to seize or discover if there were guns, they wouldn't have done it at 5 in the morning. They would have done it, and they probably knew about this political education class. You're right. So coming more towards a close here what do you think is left in the fred hampton file and why haven't they released it well and and jeff jeff's answer is going to be completely different than mine because the plo got fred hampton's field office file his 157 file during discovery they also got the black panther party Chicago file, uh, which I should have done at the same time, but I didn't. Uh, uh, so I am the first non-lawyer, non-government uh, official to request Fred Hampton's file. So I was put on a very slow track. That means I've asked for a lot. I wanted it all. So they're going to put me on a slow track because it takes a long time to process all of these documents. I was not aware that there was a 44 file. A 44 file in Chicago, well, in, in Washington, uh, was about the civil trial. So there are, 
I have 27 volumes of FBI files just on the, the civil trial that the PLO and Jeffrey Haas brought. So that's why I know a lot of the things about the civil trial without actually needing to have the transcripts or, or the exhibits or things like that. But Fred also, wherever he went, that is Canada, California, Milwaukee, New York, Louisiana, the FBI offices in those states or in those cities where he went picked up his trail. So in every city that he went, there was going to be an FBI file on him in that city. So when I asked for everything, I asked specifically for the cities that I knew he had visited. And sure enough, what they told me was that you've got about 30 to 50,000 documents pertaining to Fred Hampton. Do you want them all? I said, yes. And so, of course, they started pro uh, processing them. After about 15,000 documents, they stopped producing. I No explanation. Uh, repeated uh, letters to them uh, went ignored, not just unanswered, but ignored. But as I was processing what they had given me, I discovered things that I had originally asked for that they did not provide. Um, the different surveillance techniques that the FBI used to surveil people, whether it was electronic, whether it was microphone, whether it was uh, a human being, these records, the phone taps, the ELSERs or the electronic surveillance, these logs were not given to me. Uh, June mail, which is another way, uh, another um, surreptitious covert means of, of, of extracting information, these were not given to me. His control file, of which I have had his number because in one of the unredacted uh, documents that the PLO uh, unearthed gave me the control number file. So I had Fred Hampton's control number file, control file number. They did not give it to me. In interagency documents. That is, the FBI is processing these things for me. They come across a document that they did not create. Another agency created it. They put a little form in there that says, this serial number was created by another agency. We have contacted that agency because we can't release it. They will contact you. Out of two dozen of those, no other agency of the US government has ever contacted me. So apparently the FBI did not do what the form says they did, and that is that they contacted the agency to contact me. Um, I have to get off in about three minutes though. Okay, sorry, Jeff, then go right ahead, go right ahead. Uh, if there was one thing that I would like to see that we may never see is because they didn't allow us to uh, join John Mitchell, the attorney general, and Nixon, it would have been interesting to find out how Fred's assassination was reported to them. Did they have prior knowledge of it? How, what were they told happened? What was their communication about it? Uh, I don't know that we'll ever see that, unfortunately, uh, because they weren't defendants in the case. So whether that might ever show up uh, I think it would be most interesting. Well, Mr. Haas, before you go, do you mind promoting your links real quick to where everybody can find your book and your website if you got one? The book is The Assassination of Fred Hampton, How the FBI and Chicago Police Murdered a Black Panther. Uh, you can find me on Facebook at Jeffrey H. Haas. Um, and you can buy the book anywhere from your local bookstore, which I would urge you to do. 
to obviously Amazon and, and, and other bookstores. And we hope to have a podcast out within the next few months uh, of Panthers, of people who knew Fred, uh, there will be a series. And hopefully uh, I'll be able to give you more information about that in about six weeks. Well, if you need some help with that podcast, just let me know. I can give you a couple of tips. I've done an episode here or there, if you know what I'm saying. It sounds like you're pretty experienced. Thank you. And you do a good interview. Well, Craig, would you like to promote your links as well too, man? Uh, unfortunately, I don't have nearly as many links as I would like. Uh, one of the things that I did want to do, did want to do, and I will do, like Jeffrey said, within the next few weeks, uh, is is a is a more in depth scene by scene analysis of Judas and the Black Messiah. Again, not to criticize the film or say that it should have been a documentary, but simply to give people an alternate to the film. If they want to know what really happened, then I will have this blog to be able to go point by point and and let them know what in fact happened um anybody who is interested in my work on the jfk assassination can go to wordpress i'm sorry craig chaconi wordpress craigchaconi.wordpress.com and 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 see my work on the kennedy assassination there and i'm gonna link all that in the description it's been a pleasure talking with you both um and learning more about the fred hampton assassination hopefully this will educate some viewers out there as well too uh, thanks for all the work that both of you guys do uh, towards not only the Fred Hampton assassination, but also giving me the time to talk on my show. I really appreciate it. I really do. Thanks so thank, much, Robbie. Jeffrey, was a pleasure. Yes, Craig. Good to see you again. I'm sorry I didn't remember you. I think we both changed a bit. And Robbie, thank you. I get what you mean by my informal goodbyes on the ending of my shows. But thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of the Blank Podcast.